very nice to be here, and it's very nice to see so many familiar faces. As Ed said, uh, the topic tonight is the eight worldly winds, or the vicissitudes of life. And I'll begin with what Jack Cornfield says. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute are the eight worldly winds. They ceaselessly change. As a mountain is unshaken by the wind, so the heart of a wise person is unmoved by all the changes on this earth. Embracing both joy and sorrow, our heart can remain tender and wise. And Sharon Salzberg says, Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, constantly arise and pass away beyond our control. And this phrase, beyond our control, is important. This suggests that these winds, (laughs) these changes, these vicissitudes, are not our fault. We are not in control. They are part of the ongoing cycle of life and therefore not personal. We don't have to take them personally. So the definition of vicissitude is change and there are two different types. One is, is the regular change, um, like night to day, day to night, Monday to Tuesday, um, summer to fall, that kind of regular predictable change. The other is irregular change. That is uh, the impermanence of life, the constant change, the change that comes about Um, through a natural occurrence, uh, you know, flooding and earthquakes and these kinds of disasters, or just the normal uh, change in the conditions of life. You know, the stock market goes up, the stock market goes down, the price of oil goes up, the price of oil goes down, and on and on and on. Uh, Unpredictable by and large, but part of the normal flow, the normal change of life. So because it's a normal change, it's to be expected, we don't have to take either ownership or responsibility. We can see these changes as causes and conditions. And we don't have to own them as me or mine. However, these changes, if we're not mindful, if we're not paying attention, are the winds that can blow us to and fro, that can knock us off our equanimity, off our balance, off our sense of 
contentment or um, peace of mind. So it is important that we pay attention, that we are mindful, and that we are aware of these changes before we get caught up. If we're not, we will find ourselves caught up in praise or blame or gain or loss or whatever and we will be tossed about. We will really be um, <laughs> knocked about, bloodied by life, by just what's happening. And it's important to remember that it's not the events of life that are so important, but how we respond to them, what our relationship to them is. So when these winds appear, when there is gain or loss or fame or disrepute, rather than focusing on the external event, what has happened, our job is to turn inward and focus on our inner state or focus on what our response, what our reaction to whatever is going on is. Thereby, we use these changes, these winds, to learn more about ourselves. We learn about our reaction about our inner state, about what's going on with us, rather than blaming the external event. And I know that's easier said than done. All of us uh, can so easily blame or... It seems really logical. It seems to make sense, right? I'm unhappy because my house burned down or because my best friend died or whatever. The truth is we can be unhappy without suffering or without being knocked off our base, off our equanimity. We know that these things happen. A good friend of mine in, uh, um, well, who goes to IMC, and probably some of you, many of you know her, Terry Lesser, who teaches yoga. Her house burned down, what, three, three and a half years ago. And she was such a model of equanimity. I never saw her ruffled about the fact that they had to start over. The house burned down. Even when, when I first found out and I reacted, wow, what a shame, or something like that. And she said, it's a house. <laughs> and she stayed that way, as far as I saw, throughout the whole uh, ordeal, the whole episode. I thought that that was a wonderful example, a wonderful role model. Most of us would think that a house burning down was pretty traumatic. Uh, maybe even the end of the world. <laughs> and she took it in stride. It's one of those things. It's what happens. So, happiness comes from a heart that is at rest, a heart that is at peace, not from changing external circumstances. I want to underscore that because that's a theme tonight 
that our happiness is not dependent on external circumstances. It comes from a heart that's at peace. So let's look a little bit at each of these pairs. And I'm going to start with pleasure and pain, which we also know as sukha and dukkha, right? Happiness and suffering. Or as pleasant and unpleasant, Vedana, what Andrea is going to talk about. Or sometimes as joy and sorrow. And again, pleasure and pain are an inevitable part of life. What's important to remember is that when we have pain or discomfort or sorrow, it's not because we have done something wrong or because there is something wrong. So often we tend to feel that way, right? Either there's something wrong in the world or we've done something wrong to create this pain. Um, and it's not necessarily so. Obviously, of course, we play a part and we may have, have a part in whatever happens. But it is inevitable in our life that there will be sorrow, that there will be pain. You know, the saying, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Pointing again to the fact that it's not the circumstance. Pain is going to happen in every life. There is pain. We all have loss. Um, we all have unpleasantness. That's inevitable. But the suffering attached to that is not inevitable. That's what we can change by changing our internal state. And how do we do that? Well, a lot through our mindfulness, our awareness, paying attention. A lot through our understanding of the inevitableness of pain or sorrow in our lives. And not making some story about it that is, in fact, not true. Seeing it as causes and conditions. This is what the Buddha taught, that things happen because of causes and conditions. And of course, we're a part of those causes and conditions, but we're not the sole contributing factor. So I chose pleasure and pain to talk about first because this is the essence of the Buddha's teachings, right? that we grasp onto pleasure and we push away or we resist the unpleasant or the pain. And this is the normal dance of our lives most of the time, right? We're grasping, we're wanting more of the pleasant, we're pushing away the unpleasant. And of course we think that's how it should be. And we often think, or we're often strongly supported by the culture, which also thinks that we should have pleasure, we should not have pain. This is, this is a cultural, I think, um, what would we call it, norm or belief that, um, that we deserve pleasure, right? That we should have only pleasure in our life and that we should not have pain. Isn't that what all the advertising is about? Get rid of the pain. 
in whatever way, by buying a new car or taking this pill or whatever. But get rid of the pain. That's not okay. Hang on to the pleasure or do what you need to do to get the pleasure. And the Buddha suggests this is not the way to freedom. This is not the way to happiness. In fact, this is an entrapment. Grasping onto pleasure and pushing away pain is a trap for us. It keeps us stuck. It leads to dukkha or suffering. It does not lead to freedom and happiness. So we see, we come to see our grasping and we stop. We learn to let go. We see that this is not creating happiness, this is creating suffering. And through seeing this, we are in time able to let go of the grasping and learn to accept life on its terms, to accept the vicissitudes, to accept the ups and downs of life, and to experience life in its fullness. It's amazing, but when we open to all of life, the pain as well as the pleasure, our life becomes fuller and richer and more satisfying and more complete. It actually doesn't work and it actually isn't very satisfying to try to have only one side of the equation. That might be hard for us to get or to understand until we actually try or until we actually see that, until we actually embrace the pain and see that that's a part of life. That's part of the richness, of the texture, of the fullness of life and not to be pushed away. So, <clears throat> I love to read from the prophet, Galil Gibran, and he has a very, a very wonderful piece on joy and sorrow. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked, and the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit, very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look deep into your heart, and you shall find that it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. Amazing. Only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart. And you will see that in truth, you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say, joy is greater than sorrow. And others say, nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. Verily, you are suspended like scales, 
between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you at a standstill and balanced. Only when we're not swinging between our sorrow and our joy are we at standstill and balanced. When the treasure keeper lifts you to weigh his gold and his silver, needs must your joy or your sorrow rise or fall. So another way I have of looking at sorrow or pain or what I might want to push away is to see how can I use it or of what benefit can it be. Because very often what we want to push away, what we want to deny or not see can help us to grow can be what we sometimes call a dharma gate, um, a pathway, a gateway to freedom. So when we get tired of pushing away, we can actually take it and look at it and see what, how can I use this? How can this be of benefit? How can this help me to grow? Or how can this help me to share more, to contribute more, to life. So then the next pair, praise and blame. This is probably a big one for many of us. Certainly I have been stuck (laughs) in praise and blame, uh, mostly in stuck in praise, attached to praise. But when we are caught in this this duality, we are looking for our okayness, for our sense of worth or value from others rather than getting that from inside. And when we do that, we're dependent on others. If we are looking to others for our sense of, of worth, then we're going to be acting in ways that we think are going to get what we want from others and not being very authentic. And of course the truth is some will like us, some will not. That's how it is, right? That can be a hard thing for us to accept, but what freedom when we do. That not everybody's going to like us or like what we say or like what we do. That's just, that's just how it is. And actually, usually, that says more about the other person than it does about us. Not as a criticism, per se. But if somebody likes what I'm saying tonight, probably that's because I'm saying something that is relevant to you or your life. If somebody doesn't like what I'm saying, probably it's because it doesn't have relevance to them or because they don't really want to hear it. So that really says in both cases, whether it's praise or blame, it says more about the other person than it does about what, what I'm saying. And this can be, this can be um, a great relief 
a great uh, sense of release and freedom that my job is to say what I think is important, not to worry about who thinks it's valuable or who doesn't. Now, it took me a long time to get to that point because in years past I would have thought, wow, how callous or uncaring or, you know, something like that on my part. And now I see that that's not so at all. It's a way of letting go. It's not about me. It's not about Brigitte. It's about the teaching. And some will hear it and take it, and some will not. So the Dhammapada has a lot to say about these eight winds, but one I like in particular that fits with this. Ancient is this saying, it is not just of today. They find fault in one sitting silently. They find fault in one speaking much. They find fault in one speaking moderately. No one in this world is not found at fault. No person can be found who has been, is, or will be only criticized or only praised. So again, that can, that can be quite free. They praise you if you say too much, they, or they blame you if you say too much, they blame you if you say too little, they blame you if you're moderate. So, uh, there was a saying um, I heard many, many years ago, if you're not being criticized, you're not doing enough. <laughs> you're not out there, you know. You're hiding, you're too protected. And that certainly was true for me, I think, for a number of years I was hiding because I was terrified of criticism. Not that I got that much, but maybe that's even <laughs> partly why I was terrified of getting criticized, so I played it safe, you know. I was hiding, but what a lot of life I missed. Not that, you know, my life was so bad. I've had a pretty good life. But when I look back, um, playing it safe really, really limited what I was willing to do and really limited my spontaneity, my ability to just be who I am. And... Buddhist practice has been essential in that transformation for me. Um, seeing, letting go of um, the importance of this <laughs> self. I actually was reflecting or was thinking as we were sitting that um, coming to feel a part of everything, not special, either by being better or being worse, but just a part of this web of life, a part of the dance, the play, Leela, of life, is, is a large part of what has freed me to just be who I am. Because having to be either better than or worse than or something in particular is very, very limiting. And when I felt I had to be something special, perfect or whatever, um, then it limited what I could do or say because I could only act within a narrow range. 
And of course, that narrow range was all of my making. It wasn't anything real. But it was what I thought would keep me from being criticized, keep me safe. Um, so I discovered not, not a joyous, not a free way to live. So learning to live without attachment to either praise or blame. Learning to live in a more equanimous way. Living or being like a mountain that is unmovable, unshakable, unperturbable. I love that word, unperturbable. Steady, still as a mountain. The image of a mountain is often used in Buddhist practice um, to refer to equanimity, that equanimity that is still. Um, I just took a look at my notes and noticed, yes, I, I heard um, a program this morning about Obama, maybe some of you did, on um, Talk of the Nation. And someone uh, who had been, well, several people who knew him quite well and uh, worked with him, one had been uh, a classmate, talked about how introspective he was and that through this introspection, he had come to know himself quite well. And because of that, he was quite confident and quite steady. He, his confidence came from inside. He was not so dependent on externals, on, on the praise or blame that he got from the outside. And that, you know, I remember that, that stood out for me, that he knows himself so well. He understands himself. And I thought, you know, I've been introspective too, but in a much more critical way. The way I understood it for him was exploring himself, understanding himself, understanding his roots, his biracial, um, what, nature, <laughs> his upbringing, etc., in an understanding way, not in a critical way. And that, that gave him a very solid footing. So then the third pair, that of gain and loss, or sometimes referred to as success and failure. And this, uh, particularly gain and loss, well, I think the two are often tied. Gain and loss is often tied to success and failure. And it can be gain or loss of money, which frequently that's what's referred to when we say gain or loss, but it can also be weight, it can be health, it can be attention, you know, it can be any number of things. And the problem, of course, is that we identify with it. If we gain a lot of money, we identify with that. If we gain a lot of weight, we identify with that. We think that's who we are. And when we do, then the loss of that, particularly money, um, can be devastating. Or the same with success or failure. We identify with our success or we identify with our failure. And how many times have we read of successful, very successful people who have then lost whatever it was and are suicidal? Many actually commit 
suicide because they cannot bear the loss when they've built their lives on the identity of that success. So a good lesson in not taking it so personally. And I want to read another piece from Thich Nhat Hanh that talks about this, I think, very, um, very well. Examine your talent, your virtue, your capacity, the convergence of favorable conditions that have led to success. Examine the complacency and the arrogance that have arisen from the feeling that you are the main cause for such, such success. Shed the light of interdependence on the whole matter to see that the achievement is not really yours, but the convergence of various conditions beyond your reach. See to it that you will not be bound to these achievements. Only when you can relinquish them can you really be free and no longer assailed by them. So not owning the success, but seeing as the convergence of causes and conditions. Recall the bitterest failures in your life and examine each of them. Examine your talent, your virtue, your capacity, and the absence of favorable conditions that led to the failures. Examine to see all the complexes that have arisen within you from the feeling that you are not capable of realizing success. Shed the light of interdependence on the whole matter to see that failures cannot be accounted for by your inabilities, but rather by the lack of favorable conditions. See that you have no strength to shoulder these failures. I love that. See that you have no strength to shoulder these failures. That these failures are not your own. See to it that you are free from them. Only when you can relinquish them can you really be free and no longer assailed by them. So letting go of both success and failure. They are not ours. They do not belong to me. They are not mine. They, are, they arise out of the convergence of causes and conditions. I don't know about you, but for me that's so freeing. And of course I'm a part. I mean, we don't want to say that we have no part in it. We're just victims of all these circumstances. I don't think that's the point. We are a part of all these causes and conditions. But the sum total and the, um, the result is out of our reach, is beyond our control. It's like we say, we, know, you know, we, we take each step, we do our very best and let go of the outcome because we can't control that. So then, fame and disrepute is the fourth of these, fairs, of these pairs, or favor and disgrace. And fame and disrepute uh, we see every day in our public figures, right? 
politicians or movie stars or you know the psychologist with the latest theory or the physicist with the latest theory or whatever we see people all the time in the public eye that you know rise to high plateaus and then 10 years later we don't even know their names right we don't don't remember the public is fickle you know all of us are fickle and we jump on the bandwagon one day and the next day it's passé so we can see so clearly that if we're attached to that fame, if we're attached to recognition or um, whatever, you know, rewards, then when that disappears, which it inevitably will, we suffer. We can suffer greatly. So again, seeing that as the way life is, the changing circumstances of life. Not that we're so wonderful and not that we're so terrible. We just are. And sometimes, um, you know, sometimes people get well-known and we sit back and think, why? Why this person? Or why now? Right? It's kind of unexplainable. That's when we can see so clearly it's not the person alone. It's all these things that converge, all these things that come together, and somebody's there at the right time at the right place. So, a Chinese poet says, Favor and disgrace are meaningless. What's the use of contending? Drifting clouds do not obstruct the shining moonlight. So we can be like the moonlight, right? And let the winds, <laughs> all these winds, and the clouds blow through or blow by, and our light still shines. So we have these four pairs, these eight winds, these um, polarities, these opposites that depend on each other because each is defined by the other. Praise has no meaning without blame. Fame has no meaning without disrepute. Loss has no meaning without gain, right? They're part of the natural rhythm of life. Many years ago, I took a training called life training that used to say, sometimes life is up, sometimes it's down, sometimes it's all around. And I wore the pin tonight <laughs> to symbolize. This was the pin that um, people wore symbolizing the ups and downs and all around of life. That's just how it is. And our task is to see the natural change, the impermanence, with our mindfulness, with our awareness, with our wisdom, and let go of any clinging. Let go of our identification. Let it all be. 
and not be so attached, not be so identified with any of us. Begin to accept life on its terms and thereby establish our equanimity, our mountain state, and not be blown about, not be so perturbed by all the changes. So I'll end with a Zen card that says, Rejoice in whatever life gives you. Crave nothing else. Know that whatever you have been given is for your own highest good. Isn't that a nice way to see things? That whatever has been given is for our highest good. It reminds me of Rumi's poem about the guest house where he says, welcome, welcome whatever guest comes to visit you. Know that it is a gift from beyond. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.